everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and welcome to another episode of Insight into Isaiah. We have progressed quite a bit into this book, the final 27 chapters, and if you would, turn in your Bible now to chapter 63. We're ready to begin there. Um, as we've been looking at these past portions, Isaiah has now begun to shift where he's interspringing, or interspringing, that's not really where he's interlacing the, the descriptions of the sins that are going on that Israel has committed, the world has committed, idolatry and so forth, and showing the, the futileness of that. And he's begun to tell us about the wonderful work of the Redeemer and what he'll be doing for us as we overcome that and speaking to the future and to the kingdom about how that uh, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be a, a, a great thing. Um, the, there's a famous scene um, in a, a, a movie that came out many years ago uh, called, um, I think it was a 2010 Space Odyssey. And it was a kind of a space movie with astronauts and so forth. And, and it was way into the future. Of course, 2010 is way past. But, but uh, they had this um, spacecraft that was orbiting around Jupiter. And they had sent this crew to check on it because they lost the astronauts, didn't have contact with them anymore. And so they're trying to explore, find out what happened, what happened to the other astronauts, and, and so forth. And there was a lot of suspense and intrigue in it. And there comes a moment when one of the um, astronauts that came for the rescue goes onto this spacecraft that belonged to these other guys. And he's looking for survivors. He's looking for, you know, the, the, the previous ones. And he runs into someone that kind of looks like one of them, but you kind of left the impression that's not the real astronaut. That's not the real guy. That, that's something else. And there's this very suspenseful moment in which that uh, as they confront each other, why the, the astronaut that was supposed to be there, he says to the fellow, he said, something's going to happen. And very suspenseful. And he says, what? What's supposed to happen? And then the guy comes back with the answer, and he says, something wonderful. And it's a very poignant moment in the movie uh, and part of the story that was given in that movie. I've always noted that what Isaiah is doing here strikes me in the same way that is. Because Isaiah is beginning to shift gears now at this part of the chapters in which that he basically says something incredible is going to happen. And as you read just a little bit further, he starts describing something utterly wonderful is going to take place. When the Messiah returns, uh, establishes righteousness on the earth, gets rid of iniquity and sin and transgression, and that uh, uh, we all know the Torah and will be in his kingdom and will all experience freedom and life and, and eternal life and, and, and we don't have the sin problem anymore and, and it's something wonderful is going to take place. And so he drops these hints in these final chapters of those things, which makes it kind of interesting because he sprinkles them back and forth um, as he comes to it. Let me just read the last verses of the previous chapter so you get the hint of this is what he's laying on us. Chapter 62 and verse 10, just to review very quickly, he says, Go through, go through the gates, 
clear the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken." Now, that is very interesting language, but let me just summarize that when the Lord comes back, something wonderful is going to happen. It's going to happen for us, and it's going to be of great benefit to us uh, for that. A lot of people, you know, I have, since I've taught a lot of eschatology, uh, a lot of people really don't like the teaching of eschatology. They don't want to hear somebody talk about the coming of the Lord. And to tell you the truth, as I've shared over the years with many people, there's only two groups of people that I've really found publicly way out there that are really excited about the idea of the Lord coming. Um, that's people that are in debt and people who are crippled or have chronic diseases. Now, the people in debt are like, I'm never going to be able to pay these bills off. When God comes here, maybe I'll escape all these bills. Um, and then the other one is, I'll get my new body. I will get my new body. And so those are wonderful things. The average person who's working and is working toward their retirement and has finally, you know, got to the point where he's not in perpetual debt. He's doing okay. He's able to take a vacation. He's having fun with his family and so forth. He don't want the Lord to come back. They don't want him to come back and mess up everything he's been working on all of his life. Uh, or change things. Youth in particular, they don't want the Lord to come back. I want to live my life. I want to, I want to go do what I wanted to do, go to college or have a career, or get married, have a job. You know, um, they, they don't want the Lord to come and change it. And so they know there's going to be this big change when the Lord comes. And by the way, there will be a big change when the Lord comes. However, the one thing that they fail to understand, that this change that will take place will be utterly wonderful, far better than anything that you could ever hope to achieve here in the earth. Because one of the things that mankind learns, this is part of the lessons of mortality, even if you were successful in all of your life, doing the very things that you love to do and that you want to do, and you, let's say that you got to do it. Let's say you got enough resources that you could, you weren't limited, you could do whatever you wanted to, you were as rich as you needed to be. Uh, but the problem is that the older you get, the more you realize your life is fleeting away. And it's going to come to an end. And everything that you've gathered and you've gained, you're not going to be able to take with you. You're not going to be able to continue to use it. It'll just, it will go away. It'll, in fact, your heirs will probably disperse it and get rid of it within the first six months. That's usually the way it works. So it's like vanity. But when the Messiah returns, it's not vanity. It moves into a whole new realm. And it's not subject to the things of the mortal and the temporal. It's not subject to the things of the world that we have today. There's a whole new world coming, and he'll be the one ushering it in. Now that, if we could get the vision of that, I think could possibly really change behaviors. And I think that's what Isaiah is trying to do here. 
He's trying to tell you these incredible, wonderful, good things that are going to happen as part of a motivation to get you to change what you're doing here temporarily and get focused on the eternal things as opposed to the temporal things of the world. Give up on the world and get serious about what's happening with the Lord and, and get yourself ready to be in his kingdom uh, for it. That's very hard to do for a lot of people, but that's really what he's attempting to do here. And as he will conclude here a little bit, he is going to be focused on those things. And, he, and in particular, as we move into these, uh, this next chapter, 63, the focus is going to move from ancient Israel and all the things that were going on with it. It's actually kind of, it almost sounds like he's starting to speak to the final generation. Now, we, who I believe we're in the days of the final generation, should, we should then get very focused about what this sermon has been about and what Isaiah is really trying to say to you. And, and I'll show you here in a little bit how this plays in and how it has moved me and stimulated me in my life and, and how I like to share it with others in the hopes that it will stimulate you and inspire you uh, as well with all of these things that he's talking about. So with that introduction to chapter 63, let's see what Isaiah has to say. Verse 1, it says, Who is this who comes from Edom with the garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads the winepress. I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from peoples there was no man with me. I also tread them, trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all of my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. Now, let me stop there for a moment. You know, I mentioned to you before, there's a lot of people that really don't want to hear about the second coming. You know, the, the big changes that are coming. That set of verses that I just read to you is probably one of the most dramatic set of scriptures talking about the second coming of the Lord and the day of, day of the Lord to take place. In fact, I'm going to take you to a parallel passage that is from what Isaiah said here. Let me show you what the Apostle John had to say in the book of Revelation. So to go with me to Revelation chapter um, 19. Remembering what we just heard there before, you know, he's, uh, that his garments are, are stained, the lower part of his garments from treading the winepress, the wrath of God. So let me read to you now Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is a picture of the returning Messiah. And if you go back and look at the earlier descriptions of the glorified Messiah, 
uh, both from the prophet Daniel as well as from John here in the book of Revelation. He describes how his hair is white, his eyes are a flame of fire, and a very direct, very uh, dramatic uh, countenance that the Lord has as the returning king. He's riding on a white horse. You know, Daniel talked about that. Uh, coming to do judgment, he gathers up his saints first, and then he carries out the day of the Lord and judgment upon the whole world. And so he talks about here this judgment that falls um, where he, he takes his enemies and he puts them in a wine press and he smashes them. And in the course, just like a wine press where you'd stomp all the grapes, where the juice of the grapes spits back up onto your lower garments. Well, the same thing's going to happen to him. The, the blood of his enemies will sprinkle up on the lower part of his garments. And that one of the visions that you see of him is that he has judged his enemies. And that's part of the appearance of him, loving and judge, faithful and true in all of those things. An incredible uh, picture for it. Now, let me take you back to, again, verse 1, because I'm going to show you something that uh, very dramatically ties this together. <clears throat> back to Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? So let's talk about Edom and Basra. Is that part of Israel? No. Where is Edom and where is Basra? is down to the south, southern part of Israel to the east. It would be the southern part of Jordan today on the map. Why is it calling that out? Edom was named after Esau. Esau's name is Edom. It means red. Now Esau is, is who he is, but he was also called Edom because he had red hair. Um, and he used to live there. And in fact, uh, when um, Jacob returned to the land and had to deal with his brother uh, Esau, he came from that place and went to meet him as Jacob came into the land. And it became the area of where essentially generation after generation, con enemies of Israel continued to perpetuate. This is where Amalek came from. And Amalek, of course, you know, was a huge enemy of Israel in the wilderness when they were traveling to the Promised Land. And throughout the generations, we've had a conflict between the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob. And, in fact, that's the reason why God has said, Esau I have hated, Jacob I have loved. Esau is regarded as the enemy. And from generation to generation to generation up to the present time, it's the descendants of Edom and Esau that are causing the problem with Israel and the Jewish people. They're the ones. I personally believe that many of the Palestinians that are in the land and causing such a problem, they are the descendants of Esau that this ancient conflict going all the way back to our father Jacob has now advanced. And here is 
the Lord, executing the day of the Lord. So the Lord returns. He's going to do the day of the Lord. So where's the first place he's going to hit? You know, the average person, if you were to ask him that, he'd say, oh, he's going to go to Armageddon. You know, the battle of Armageddon and, and so forth. No, that's not what the prophecy says. The prophecy says that Armageddon is the gathering place of the enemies of God. But where is the first conflict where actually the Messiah begins to slaughter his enemies? In Edom, down to the south and to the east. That's where the actual battle takes place, the first battle of the day of the Lord. That's where the first judgment begins to fall. And so the picture that's shown of the Messiah returning is him executing the day of the Lord judgment there at Edom and Basra first. And so he's seen coming from there, and there's the evidence the day of the Lord has now begun to take place. And it's part of the... Well, let me use the word majesty of the return of the Lord. When you look at the whole context of the the resurrection, the rapture, the gathering of all the saints, and the judgment of all of his enemies. The combination of those two things is what's being expressed here. And and this is a is going to be a tremendous event. It's going to be as tremendous as uh, coming out of Egypt. It's going to be as tremendous as uh, uh, the Messiah's uh, work of redemption on the cross. This is going to be a future tremendous event. And we, who are the believers, we will look at that event and we will understand that event of the coming of the Messiah when he touched down as being an unbelievable thing that was scary, but it turns out to be wonderful. It will be a wonderful thing. The um, um, it's just an incredible picture, and it, it you know as I've taught on eschatology and talked about the return of the Lord, and I've seen the way people have reacted, not in a favorable way to it. I have a fear that this is these things that we're describing right here are going to be a little bit more fearful than wonderful for them. Uh, because they're not oriented to it. They don't see the good and positive that will be coming to them and to their families. Instead, they would just assume not deal with it. They would just, they don't want to uh, come to terms with it. But it's going to happen. We might as well get in parallel with God's plan as opposed to being opposed to his plan. So let's continue on now. Um, verse 4, let me repeat that again. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, the day of the Lord, and my year of redemption has come. Now, most Christians, we think of redemption as being way back when the Messiah came and did the work on the cross. And that's true. God laid forth our redemption and salvation at that time. But let's look at this from the standpoint of from a Jewish perspective. I'm going to give you a Hebrew perspective of how they see these events come together. And, because, and this verse is one of the reasons they think that way. Yes, redemption has taken place with the work of the Messiah coming in and paying the price for our sins. But the final redemption... The final redemption is when all the scattered exiles all over the world of God's people are brought to the promised land to live with the Lord. 
that redemption being purchased out of slavery of the whole world. That's called the final redemption. And when they didn't see Yeshua of Nazareth do the final redemption, then they, they hadn't separated out and distinguished the work of redemption versus the work of restoration. They just were, they thought redemption was at the end of the ages. And it wasn't the end of the ages when Yeshua came the first time, so they don't believe it. Or at least that's their theological argument. Of course, the way you counter the argument is you say, well, in the final redemption, it says the Messiah would bring all the gathered exiles and all of Israel had been exiled. Well, it's only in this generation that we finally seen the house of Judah come back to land. In the days of Yeshua, the house of Judah was in the land. They had not been scattered like the house of Israel, but shortly after the, his generation, they were scattered by the Romans. They were scattered throughout the world. And so in 48, we see the Jews come back, reestablish the state of Israel, and we see the early steps of what the Jews call the final redemption. The scattered exiles are being brought back. Now the question is, what about the house of Israel? Where are they at? To observant Hebrew Jews in the land who believe in the final redemption, they are looking for the day when B'nai Ephraim the sons of Ephraim will be returning to the land and joining with them, just as the prophets say. It is commonly what we call in the Messianic teaching, the two-house teaching. That the house of Judah is in the land, we're looking for the house of Israel to return. And personally, I believe, not every person now, but I believe that there are a host of people that are turning in these days uh, to the messianic movement that are they're moving away from the church and now joining the messianic movement i i can't prove your genealogy nor can you but my suspicion is that this is the work and the faithfulness of god to begin to gather up the house of israel and those that are descendants of ephron that we're going to be scattered in all the nations and bringing them back and getting ready to get them to join with their brother judah now, as to how many will get back in the land before the Messiah returns, I don't know that, that that much will happen. But I do know that when the Messiah returns, all of us are coming back. We'll all be coming back at that point. <clears throat> and that is what's being expressed here. This final redemption is when all Israel is saved, uh, which is a, a, a quote that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 11. Thus all Israel shall be saved, when he's talking about the final restoration. Very perplexing, that little statement, thus all Israel will be saved, is because the average Christian and Christian pastors and Christian teachers over the years, they have no idea what that verse means. In fact, I've read a host of commentaries on the book of Romans, and a lot of Christians, they have no way of explaining that verse. You know why? Because nobody's ever taught them the final redemption. They just think that Jesus came, did the work of redemption. That's over with. That's done. Um, and next stop is uh, heaven. No. The prophets have been very clear. There would be the work of redemption and salvation and forgiveness of sin, but then there's going to be a final redemption when the whole kingdom comes together and all the saints are returned, and God will bring us all back, just like when he brought us back from Egypt. 
He'll bring us to the promised land. And they can't see the big picture. Nobody's ever taught it to them. So part of the two-house teaching that we have in the Messianic movement is trying to express this and teach this. Trying to bring this to the forefront. These are the things, these are the topics and subjects that are associated with the second coming. So going back to my thing about there's a lot of people that don't want to hear about the second coming. <laughs> there's even more people that don't want to hear about, uh, the, about the house of Israel coming back. You do realize the implications if the prophecy that I'm speaking is in fact true. That this has been God's plan from the very beginning. That Israel got scattered in the nations. That he was angry with them for a time, but now he's going to redeem them. He's going to bring them back. And, and all of those kinds of And by the way, when Isaiah is talking about this, the people he's talking about that are scattered and in the hands of their enemies is the house of Israel, not the house of Judah. Isaiah is a prophet to the house of Judah. He is talking about his brethren, B'nai Ephraim. He's talking about the house of Israel, what's going to happen to them. So my Hebrew Jewish uh, folks that don't know about Yeshua, they're looking for this to happen. <laughs> my Messianic Jewish brethren are not thinking about this because they're still following the church thing. The church knows nothing about this teaching. They don't express it or teach it. They think all this has been done away with. And here's the bottom line. When the Messiah comes back to do this, talk about wrecking your theology. The whole institution of the modern church that we have today is completely defunct. It is not what God set up. It is not what God purposed. It's simply part of the turmoil and the, the raucous stuff that goes on while we've been scattered in the nations. And because when he comes back, as I've said before, he's going to wreck everybody's theology. And there's a whole lot of Christians. They're not going to the kingdom and they're not going to be able to attend First Baptist of Jerusalem. It won't exist. There will just be the temple. There'll be the Messiah. There'll be the Torah. And there'll be the promises of God. And all the religiosity that we have today, of synagogues, of churches, it will not be in the kingdom. Um, and he's talking about how he's going to gather his people and return them. And something wonderful is going to take place. And by the way, if he accomplishes just that, it will be wonderful. <laughs> All right, let's continue to look. Verse 5, And I looked, and there was no one to help. I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. You see how he's combining salvation and wrath together? Because at the end of the ages, he's going to gather the saints. It will be the resurrection of the saints and also the day of the Lord. The two of them are there connected together. And it's pictured for us in the fall holidays, the Feast of Trumpets, and then Yom Kippur. The Feast of Trumpets is the sounding of the trumpet of God, the gathering of the saints, uh, the day of the Lord is the day we afflict our souls because it's the day that God judges the world. The day of reconciliation. The world will be reconciled to God uh, on that day. 
And so he goes on to say, And I trod down the people in my angry, anger and made them drink in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Day of the Lord. And many other explanations that are similar to that. By the way, if you'd like to do a little more study on the day of the Lord, really what it's about, there's one whole book dedicated to the subject. It's the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah spends his entire book explaining some of these concepts of what the day of the Lord is about. And it is a, it will completely change your thinking about what the definition of the day of the Lord is and, and show you what, what Isaiah has been talking about here, what the Messiah was talking about. And this picture of the Messiah riding on a white horse and his vestures, his, his clothing, his dipped in blood, um, from treading the fierce winepress of the wrath of God. And you'll understand what that's about. So let's now look to verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. We're now going to, very positive expression, very positive thought he's going to give us. According to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal, who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. And in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them and carried them all the days of old, for they by, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses. Where is he? who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. First of all, Isaiah is not talking to the house of Judah brethren. He's talking to the northern kingdom. Now, Isaiah was a prophet to the house of Judah, but now he has a message out to them because he knew that they will be in extended, scattered state all the way to the end of the ages. And that has been true. Since like 722 B.C., the house of Israel been scattered by the Assyrians and scattered throughout all of the world. And even to this day, they're recognized as still scattered in the nations. Now, here you and I are as Messianic brethren, and we're scattered in the nations, and we're turning back to the Lord. We're turning back to the Torah and, and putting together what God did originally along with the work of the Messiah, and we're getting the more a complete picture of what God's really doing, including our hope and our future to be part of the kingdom that will be brought back together with it. So he's laying this out, and he's talking about the house of Israel. Hey, they misbehaved. I scattered them in the nations. 
But, you know, I want you to take that note here, verse 6. Surely they are my people. You know what Hosea said to the house of Israel? The judgment that he spoke to the house of Israel was they would become low me. They would become not my people. And what that really means is that the house of Israel was punished and scattered into the nations where they lost their identity that they were even part of Israel. They were so assimilated amongst the nations and so forth, they didn't even know where they originate from. They, they have no sense of it. And today, anybody from the northern kingdom scattered descendants of it, and we know there are people, um, they cannot pinpoint down. But, for example, they can't say which tribe they are. They, they don't even have a sense of that I'm part of Israel. They think they're Gentiles. They're what are, people of the nations. And they don't realize that God knows who they are. And one of the things coming in the Messianic movement is this unction of the Holy Spirit that is telling Messianic believers, you're part of this. You're part of the remnant. The Torah is for you. Uh, the promises of God made to Abraham and the fathers, they're your promises. Now, mind you, I got lots of some brethren that don't like that and disagree with that. And that conflict is described here. But the day is coming when they will bow down and know, God, I loved you. And here he's making and says, I know you were called low of me, but I know you're my people. And that's what he says here. For he said, surely they are my people. Now, when God says you're the people of Israel, I don't care what your DNA says. I don't care what the other world says. I don't care what your Jewish brethren say or don't say. If God says you're my people, you are. And fully entitled to all of the promises and the benefits of the covenant God made with Israel, as well as all of the blessings that God has promised to Israel, including some of the promised land. Now... I'm not going to go any further with this. Some of my Jewish brethren claim that's a, a weird form of replacement theology. How ridiculous can they possibly be with that charge? It's very clear what God is saying here. He's making a declaration, and he knows who they are, and he's the Savior. What is the marking trait of the Bnei Ephraim? You want to know what the, the Hebrew Jews say will be the marking trait? of the Bnei Ephraim when they return? Do you know what it is they're supposed to be capable of, of doing that, that will prove that they're Bnei Ephraim? You're going to love this. They say that they will be able to tell you who the Messiah is because the Messiah is credited with bringing them back. So if Bnei Ephraim begins to return and we all have this testimony that I believe in Yeshua of Nazareth, he's the Messiah... And by the way, I posed that question to some of my Jewish friends in Israel. And I said, what are you going to do when B'nai Ephraim comes back and says that it was Yeshua of Nazareth that's bringing them back? What are you going to do then? And there, it was interesting, their response. They said, well, I'll deal with it when that happens. Okay, fine. We're all going to deal with it when it happens um, and so forth. Now, I also want you to take a look. At verse 11, if you wanted to find a single verse 
and a couple of verses that follow thereafter that describes to me the vision that I had of the modern messianic movement that as a result of the study of this book I started going looking where are my messianic brethren at because they should be emerging it's from these verses then verse 11 his people remembered the days of old of Moses where is he who brought them out of the sea and the shepherds of his flock We have heard many stories about God, Creator, made a covenant with our fathers, promised son Isaac, going down into Egypt, coming up out of Egypt, being in the promised land. We've heard the, the history of Israel. We've heard about how the Messiah came. And so we, we have the benefit of all of this previous biblical history to us and so forth. Um, he, one of the things that happens in proper restoration is you have to go back to the beginning. When you take the step to go back to the beginning, then you start laying the whole thing out, and then you get the track of what God's purpose in it is doing. And God has, from the creation, begun the process of manifesting himself to us. And when, for example, he was dealing with Adam and Eve, he manifested a certain part of him as the creator. As he came to Abraham, he manifested himself as a friend. When he came to Moses, he manifested himself as the head of the government, the lawgiver, the savior, the redeemer. And then right on up until the Messiah came and he manifested him as, as the bridegroom, bridegroom for us and so forth. And God's been in this business of manifesting himself, including the gift of the Holy Spirit for all of us. And so, in fact, if you take the first 2,000 years of biblical history, you'll find that the dominant themes in all the stories is about the fathers. The father and the fathers. If you take the middle 2,000 years of biblical history from that point it's all about the sons the sons of Israel the son of God and if you look at the last 2,000 years of history and us walking around as believers it's all about the move of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit let's see father son Holy Spirit I'm just wondering on the macro level can you now see that God has been manifesting himself to mankind over the ages I believe it's blatantly obvious well, we're coming to the point where we're with the final generation. We have the benefit of all these things. But, there, you know, a lot of our brethren, they don't pay attention to that stuff. Do you know how many churchmen have never gotten their nose into the Old Testament and studied anything? With the exception of maybe if they had a Sunday school who may have brought up some minor topic. Or maybe some preacher took one little tidbit and made a sermon out of a piece of it. How many people have really gone back and like what this is, says, you know, where is the God that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea? Where's that God? And those that are doing that are the people that are going back and studying Torah. Because of what is Torah? It's these books written by Moses telling us where we came from. Telling us about this incredible story of redemption out of Egypt. 
about God bringing us out of Egypt by crossing the Red Sea, of how God manifested himself and gave us his instructions and established a covenant with us as a people and so forth. And going back to those original things, if you study those things, it completely changes the platform, the landscape, if you will, spiritually to understand the work of the Messiah. Because if you just study the work of the Messiah, Yeshua, and you do not have that other basis, I'm here to tell you your point of view about the Messiah is severely distorted. In fact, when brethren come into the Messianic movement, one of the things that I find myself having to do is I've got to clear up some very huge misconceptions about the Messiah. Not the least of which is, by the way, you know all those commandments that were given back there at Mount Sinai? Who do you think spoke those? The Messiah was there. These are his commandments. They're not the commandments of the Father, and then the Son came along and he decided to get rid of them because he's doing something new. That when Yeshua said, if you love me, keep my commandments, he is saying he's the God of creation, that he's the God of Mount Sinai. And even John, in his gospel, the very first words of introducing the Messiah is to explain he's the creator. He was from the very beginning. But it's amazing to me, uh, in my own Christian education, nobody ever mentioned that. Nobody ever taught that. Because you do understand the implications. If the Messiah was back there then, and these were his instructions, that's what he was doing, then obviously he would come to us now, and he wouldn't be changing that. He'd be building on it. Excuse the expression. He would be fulfilling it. He wouldn't be abolishing it and getting rid of it. He would be fulfilling it, which is what he said he came to do, to make it even more full to make it even more that we would receive the promise of redemption that was that came from there the promise that abraham got and he gave to isaac that the lord will provide for the lamb for himself in that place and yeshua came back and he was that lamb he was provided in that place where abraham and isaac were and then we realize the promise. We're the recipients of the promise. All the other saints before, they were looking for the promise, but they didn't receive it. We received the promise. So in this receiving the promise, where did we get the idea? Oh, just ignore where all of that came from. Just to forget it. You've got to be kidding me. You have to be kidding me. No, this is the world we live in. But praise God, for those of you who are turning to the Messianic faith, those of you who are turning back to Torah, you're doing this that Isaiah is speaking to you about. Let me read it to you again. Verse 11. Then his people remembered the days of old, turning to Torah, of Moses, of the teaching of Moses. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is that God? Because we need that God. We need that God in the world that we live today. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? And oh, by the way, he did. 
everybody that goes around says, well, we didn't have the Holy Spirit and, until uh, after the day of Pentecost. I got news for you. Every prophet was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, all of the elders of Israel had the Spirit of Moses put on them. Those that yearned to know the Lord and God moved his Spirit on them to accomplish things. Verse 12, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Where is that God? Where's the God of the crossing of the Red Sea? By the way, you know, as we go through our lives today, um, dealing with the things we deal with and so forth, How'd you like to have a relationship um, and a companionship with the God who opened the Red Sea? And have him walking with you on a daily basis. Well, that, that's desiring the one true God. That's what you get with the Messiah. But, you know, a lot of people don't, don't see the connection. But here's a people at the end of the ages originating out of the house of Israel... And this is the question they're asking. This is what new messianics are coming in. They're learning about the God of Moses. They're learning about the God of the Red Sea. And the Torah instruction, we teach it each year if they follow along in the Torah process and cycle. Verse 13, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness? They did not stumble. He took them through 40 years in the wilderness with no food and no water. And got them all, not only them, but got 600,000 plus men and their families all the way through it. That's, an inc- that's a miracle all by itself. Um, since I'm a logistics engineer, let me, uh, let me share a couple of interesting facts with you. If I had a group of 600,000 men and their associated families on a daily basis... If I wanted to provide manna for them to eat, and you've got to have several ounces of manna for them to do it, how much manna are we talking about that would have to be brought to these people every day? Well, I'll tell you what the estimate is. It would be on a freight train with boxcars that are a mile long. A train would have to be a mile long just to have enough manna to handle one day. Uh, Water to drink, okay? Well, see, that would take another train. That one would have to be a mile and a half long with those big 9,000-gallon tankers Mm -hmm. to bring enough water in to meet the needs of that group of people for a day. Oh, firewood, you know, you got to have a fire, okay? That's another train of either two miles long or another two trains with a mile long. And and so you'd almost have to set up a railroad station and a railroad system just to meet the logistics of this group of people surviving in the wilderness one day. The Lord did this with them for 40 years. Where did all this stuff come from? How in the world did he do all of that? Well, when you see the immensity of the numbers and the logistics involved, just an incredible miracle that God did. 
Well, the whole idea is that if we recognize what God did, we recognize that he led us through the depths of the sea, that he provided manna for us, he provided water and so forth and all of the things we needed to survive, and you could find that God again, you know, the great tribulation, which only lasts three and a half years, wouldn't be that big a problem for him. And the, th the problems we have today, they wouldn't be that big a problem for him. He's already proved and already demonstrated what his capabilities are when he wants to deliver his people and get us to the promised land. If you go back and study the Torah, that's when you find out about that God and you find out about all these things. But if you never study the Torah and you hear about the great tribulation and you hear about the coming of the Lord, you're scared half out of your wits. Because you're sitting there going, how, how will God save us? And you don't have a lot of confidence in that he knows what, what is necessary to save you in the great tribulation. Because you don't know the God who led the children of Israel through the depths of the sea and took them through the wilderness and the journey to the promised land. You don't know that God. Remember? You gave up on that God. You left him. You decided to go with the church Messiah, which doesn't have that reputation. You're in trouble. And let me tell you how you're in trouble. Because you won't believe God. And by the way, you will not make it through the great tribulation if you don't trust and believe in him. You will not make it. So, why is it so important for us to go back and learn these things? Why is it important for us to turn back to this original teaching, to remember this, to find out who this God is? Our lives depend on it. It's like the final instruction that Moses put in the Torah, I'm sure you're familiar with. In his final oration, he said, speaking of the Torah, he said, These are not idle words for you. These are for your very survival today. And the saints at the end of the ages, that's when those words will really become true. And it's understanding the ancient stories that is going to help us to get through the end of the ages. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, Now those things that happen in the wilderness are for our admonition and our instruction. Upon whom will fall at the end of the ages? That would be you and me. Those instructions are key to be able to get through the final days and get us to the point of the return of the Lord and his kingdom. The keeping of his feasts is essential to understanding God's plan. Just each interval, each principle that we learn is essential for us to be prepared for what the Lord is doing. All right. So let's look at verse 15 now. Look down from heaven and see from thy holy and glorious habitation where are, where are thy zeal and thy mighty deeds, the stirrings of thy heart and thy compassion are <clears throat> restrained toward me. For thou art our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer from the old is thy name. <clears throat> I know this is going to come as a shock to you. Uh, you know, I'm... Um, I've been a teacher for a long time, but I, I do know that when I finally get to the kingdom and I get to meet my father, Abraham, I'll have to be introduced to him. He doesn't know me. And when I go up to Jacob, 
You know, my father. Oh, I have to be introduced to him, too. Because Jacob doesn't know Monty Judah. He, he, he never did. I'm one of his descendants, and all he knew he's, he would have descendants, but he doesn't know my name. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my heavenly father, he does know me. Abraham doesn't know me, but my heavenly father knows me. And he knows I'm part of that family. And I'm part of the recipient of those blessings and promises given to my fathers. He knows that. It doesn't require Abraham to know me for me to receive that heritage and those blessings from it. it that's a very, very profound thought. That there's a day coming when you're going to meet Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you're probably going to have to be introduced to them. But you won't have to introduce yourself to your heavenly father. He knows who you are. The more powerful father knows who you are. Uh, and that's the reason why the promises are being fulfilled, because the Lord is keeping them, you know, for us in all that has taken place. Verse, I think I'm at verse 17 here. Why, O Lord, dost thou cause us to stray from thy ways? And harden our heart from fearing thee. Return for the sake of thy servants, the tribes of thy heritage. The holy people possess thy sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom thou hast never ruled, like those who were never called by thy name. And essentially, this is a little bit, uh, it's self-reflective. Um, and, and I don't know if you've ever had that prayer. I, I've done this. You know, I've learned the things of the Lord. I've learned the instructions of the Lord. I've learned his commandments and so forth. You know, but there's every once in a while. I don't, it, it's almost like I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like believing real strong today. And I'm, I'm willing to, like, slow down and drift off. Why do I do that? Why, why can't I get it resolved in my heart and my soul that I'm committing myself completely to the Lord and I, and I don't have another life or another interest in any of the other stuff? Well, it's part of the dynamic of the world that we live in. It's part of the disruption of the cosmos. We're still in the midst of it. But you know, I don't think I'm going to have this problem after I'm in the kingdom. I think when the Lord has removed all of the elements of the world away from me and brought me into his kingdom, I don't think I'm going to have that problem anymore. I think it's going to be easy to obey the Lord. And I'll be energetic and interested in it every day of my life. And I'll be enjoying my eternal life and not fretting or being concerned about any mortal thing. And so it's like this prayer. It's like this cry out, Lord, I don't know why I do what I do. I don't know why Israel does what they do. You know, it would be so much better if we were in the kingdom. It's a wonderful expression and thought for that. All right, that is our session for Isaiah uh, on this episode. And we will begin with chapter 64 in our next program. Shalom to everyone. Thank you.